Section 7 of The Wit of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sherry Lothridge. The Wit of Women by Kate Sanborn. Chapter 7, Part 1. Prose but not prosy. Mrs. Alice Wellington Rollins, in those interesting articles in The Critic which induced me to look further, says, Quote, we claim high rank for the humor of women because it is almost exclusively of this higher imaginative type. A woman rarely tells an anecdote, or hoards up a good story, or comes in and describes to you something funny that she has seen. Her humor is like a flash of lightning from a clear sky, coming when you least expect it, when it could not have been premeditated, and when, to the average consciousness, there is not the slightest provocation to humor, possessing thus, in the very highest degree, the element of surprise which is not only a factor in all humor but to our mind the most important factor you tell her that you cannot spend the winter with her because you have promised to spend it with someone else and she exclaims oh ellen why were you not born twins she has perhaps recently built for herself a most charming home and coming to see yours which happens to be just a trifle more luxurious and charming she remarks as she turns away all I can say is when you want to see squalor, come and visit me in Oxford Street. She puts down her heavy coffee cup of stone china with its untasted coffee at a little country inn, saying with a sigh, It's no use, I can't get at it. It's like trying to drink over a stone wall. She writes in a letter, We parted this morning with mutual satisfaction, that is, I suppose we did. I know my satisfaction was mutual enough for two. She asks her little restless daughter in the most insinuating tones if she would not like to sit in Papa's lap and have him tell her a story, and when the little daughter responds with the most uncompromising no, turns her inducement into a threat, and remarks with severity, Well, be a good girl, or you will have to. She complains, when you have kept her waiting while you were buying undersleeves, that you must have bought undersleeves enough for a centipede. You ask how poor Mr. X is, the disconsolate widower who a fortnight ago was completely prostrated by his wife's death, and are told in calm and even tones that he is beginning to take notice. You tell her that one of the best fellows in the class has been unjustly expelled, and that the class are to wear crepe on their left arm for thirty days, and that you only hope that the president will meet you in the college yard and ask why you are wearing it, to all of which she replies soothingly, "'I wouldn't do that, Henry.' for the president might tell you not to mourn, as your friend was not lost, only gone before. You tell her of your stunned sensation on finding some of your literary work complimented in the nation, and she exclaims, I should think so. It must be like meeting an Indian, and seeing him put his hand into his no-pocket to draw out a scented pocket handkerchief instead of a tomahawk. Or she writes that two Sunday schools are trying to do all the good they can, but that each is determined at any cost to do more good than the other. I have selected several specimens of this higher type of humor. Mrs. Ellen H. Rollins was preeminently gifted in this direction. The humor in her exquisite New England bygones is so interwoven with the simple pathos of her memories that it cannot be detached without detriment to both. But I will venture to select three sketches from Old Time Child Life by E. H. R. Betsy had the reddest hair of any girl I ever knew. It was quite short in front, and she had a way of twisting it on either temple into two little buttons, which she fastened with pins. 
The rest of it she brought quite far up on top of her head, where she kept it in place with a large-sized torn comb. Her face was covered with freckles, and her eyes in winter were apt to be inflamed. She always seemed to have a mop in her hand, and she had no respect for paint. She was as neat as old Dame Safford herself, and was continually straightening things out, as she called it. Her temper, like her hair, was somewhat fiery, and when her work did not suit her, she was prone to a gloomy view of life. If she was to be believed, things were always going to rack and ruin about the house, and she had a queer way of taking time by the forelock. In the morning it was going on twelve o'clock, and at noon it was going on to midnight. She kept her six kitchen chairs in a row on one side of the room, and as many flat irons in a line on the mantelpiece. Everything where she was had, she said, to stand just so, and woe to the child who carried crookedness into her straight lines. Betsy had a manner of her own, and made a wonderful curtsy, with which her skirts puffed out all around like a cheese. She always curtsied to Parson Meeker when she met him, and said, "'I hope to see you well, sir.' Once she curtsied in a prayer meeting to a man who offered her a chair, and told him in a shrill voice to keep his setting, though she was ever so much obliged to him. This was when she was under conviction, and Parson Meeker said he thought she had met with a change of heart. Father Latham's wife hoped so, too, for then there would be a chance of having some long noses and pudding sweets left over in the orchard. It was in the time of the long drought when fire ran over Greyface and a great comma appeared in the sky. Some of the people of Whitefield thought the world was coming to an end. The comet stayed for weeks, visible even at noonday, stretching its tail from the zenith far toward the western horizon, and at night staring in at windows with its eye of fire. It was the talk of the people who pondered over it with a helpless wonder. I recall two Whitefield women as they stood one morning, bare-armed in a doorway, staring at and chattering about. One says they might as well stop work and take it easy while they can. The other thinks the better way is to keep on a steady jog until it comes. They wish they knew how near it was, and what the tale means, anyway. Betsy comes along with a pail, which she sets down, and then looks up to the comet. The air is dense with smoke from Greyface, and the dry earth is full of cracks. Betsy declares that it is going on two months since there has been any rain. Everything is going to rack and ruin, and if that thing up there should burst, there will be an end to Whitefield. Then she catches sight of me listening wide-mouthed, and she tells me that I needn't suppose she is going home to iron my pink muslin, for she thinks the tail of the comet has started and is coming right down to whisk it off from the line. I believe her and distinctly remember the terror that took hold of me as I rushed home and tore the pink muslin from the line, lest it should be whisked off by the comet's tail. When the drought broke, a single day's rain washed all the smoke from the air. Directly the tail of the comet began to fade, and all of a sudden its fiery eye went out of the sky. Some of the villagers thought it had burst, others that it had burned out. Betsy said, whatever it was, it was a humbug, and the wisest man in Whitefield could neither tell whence it came nor whither it went. One thing, however, was certain. Farmer Latham said that never since his orchard began to bear had he gathered such a crop of apples as he did, despite the drought and the year of the Great Comet. Mrs. Meeker by E. H. R. When I read of Roman matrons, I always think of Mrs. Meeker. Her features were marked, and her eyes of deepest blue. She wore her hair combed closely down over her ears, 
so that her forehead seemed to be running up in a point high upon her head. Its color was of reddish-brown, and I am sorry to say, so far as it was seen, it was not her own. It was called a scratch, and Betsy said Mrs. Meeker would look enough sight better if she would leave it off. Whether any hair at all grew upon Mrs. Meeker's head was a great problem with the village children, and nothing could better illustrate the dignity of this woman than the fact that, for more than thirty years, the whole neighborhood tried in vain to find out. Parson Meeker by E. H. R. Every Sunday he preached two long sermons, each with five heads, and each head itself divided. After the fifthly came an application with an exhortation at its close. The sermons were called very able, or more often, strong discourses. I used to think this was because Mrs. Meeker had stitched their leaves fast together. Betsy said they were just like Deacon Saunders breaking a plough, and went tearing right through sin. The parson, when I knew him, was a little slow of speech and dull of sight. He sometimes lost his place on his page. How afraid I used to be, lest not finding it, he should repeat his heads. He always brought himself up with a jerk, however, and sailed safely through to the application. When that came, Benny almost always gave me a jog with his elbow or foot. Once he stuck a pin into my arm, which made me jump so that Deacon Saunders, who sat behind, walked up with a loud snort. The deacon was always talking about the sermons being powerful in doctrine. When Benny asked Betsy what doctrines were, she told him, Let doctrines alone, and they were pies and things only fit for hardened old sinners. There are many delightful articles which must be merely alluded to in passing. As the Old Salem Shops by Eleanor Putnam, so delicate and delicious that once read, it will ever be a fragrant memory. Lewis Stockton's Women in the Restaurant. I want to give you, and Mrs. Barrow's, Penny Kitty People. A chapter from Miss Baylor's On This Side, and the opening chapters of Miss Phelps' Old Maid's Paradise. Also the description of Joppa by Grace Daniel Litchfield in Only an Incident. There are others from which it is not possible to make extracts. Miss Wilson's admirable for the major, though pathetic, almost tragic, in its underlying feeling is at the same time a story of exquisite humor, from which nevertheless not a single sentence could be quoted that would be called funny. Her work, and that of Frances Hodgson Burnett, as well as that of Miss Phelps and Mrs. Spotford, shine with a silver thread of humor, worked too intimately into the whole warp and woof to be extracted without injuring both the solid material and the tinsel. To appreciate the point and delicacy of their finest wit, you must read the whole story and grasp the entire character or situation. Mrs. E. W. Bellamy, a southern lady, published in last year's Atlantic Monthly a sketch called At Bent's Hotel, which ought to have a place in this volume, but my publisher says authoritatively that there must be a limit somewhere, so this gem must be included in a second series. There is so much truth as well as humor in the following article that it must be included, it gives in prose the agonies which Saxe told so feelingly in verse. A Fatal Reputation by Isabel Frances Bellows I am impelled to write this as an awful warning to young men and women who are just entering upon life and its responsibilities. Years ago I thoughtlessly took a false step, which at the time seemed trivial and of little import, but which has since assumed colossal portions that threaten to overshadow much of the innocent happiness of my otherwise placid existence. 
What wonder, then, that I try to avert this danger from young and inexperienced minds, who in their gay thoughtlessness rush into the very jaws of the disaster, and before they are well aware, find they are entrapped for life, as there is no escape for those who have thus brought their doom upon themselves. I will try and relate how, like the Lady of Shalott, when I first began to gaze upon the world of realities, the curse came upon me. It was in this wise. I lived in my youth an almost cloistral life of seclusion and self-absorption, from which I was suddenly shaken by circumstances, and forced to mingle in the busy world, to which after the first shock I was not at all averse, but found very interesting, and also, and there was the weight that pulled me down, tolerably amusing. For I met some curious people, and saw and heard some remarkable things, and as I went among my friends I often used to give an account of my observations, until at last I discovered that wherever I went, and under whatever circumstances, except of course at the funeral of a member of the family, I was expected to be amusing. I found myself in the same relation to society that the clown bears to the circus-master who has engaged him. He must either be funny or leave the troupe. Now I am unfortunate in having no particular accomplishments. I cannot sing either the old songs or the new, neither am I a performer on diverse instruments. I can paint a little, but my paintings do not seem to rouse any enthusiasm in the beholder, nor do they add an inspiring strain to conversation. I can indeed make gingerbread and six different kinds of pudding, but I hesitate to mention it, because the cook is far in advance of me in all these particulars, not to mention numerous other ways in which she excels. I have thus but one resource in life, and when I give one or two instances of the humiliation and distress of mind to which I have been subjected on its account, I am sure I shall win a sympathizing thought, even from those who are more favored by nature, and possibly save a few young spirits from the pain of treading in my footsteps. In the first place I am not naturally witty. Epigrams do not rise spontaneously to my lips, and it sometimes takes days and even weeks of consideration after an opportunity of making one has occurred before the appropriate words finally dawn upon me. By that time, of course, the retort is what the Catholics call a work of supererogation. I perhaps possess a slight sense of humorous, which has undoubtedly given rise to the fatal demand upon me, but I do not remember ever having been very funny. There never was any danger of my experiencing difficulties like Dr. Holmes on that famous occasion when he was as funny as he could be. I have often been as funny as I could be, but the smallest of buttons on the slenderest of threads never detached itself on my account. I have never had to restrain my humorous remarks in the slightest degree, but on the contrary have sometimes been driven into making the most atrocious jokes, and even puns, because it was evident something of the sort was expected from me, only of course something better. One occurrence of this kind will remain forever fixed in my memory. I was invited to a picnic, that most ghastly device of a human mind for playing at having a good time. At first I had declined to go, but it was represented to me that no less than three families had company for whose entertainment something should be done that two young and interesting friends of mine, just about to be engaged to each other, would be simply inconsolable if the plan were given up, and, in short, that I should show by not going an extremely hateful and unseemingly spirit. Besides, it wouldn't do to have it without you, my dear, continued my amiable friend, because you know you are always the life of the party. I sighed and consented. 
The day arrived, and before nine o'clock in the morning the mercury stood at ninety degrees in the shade. The cook overslept herself, and breakfast was so late that William Henry missed the train into the city, which didn't make it pleasant for any of us. I had made an especially delicate cake to take with me as my share of the feast, and while we were at breakfast I heard a crash in the direction of the kitchen, and hastening tremblingly to discover the origin of it, I found the cake and the plate containing it in one indistinguishable heap on the floor. "'It slipped between me two hands, as if it was alive. Bad luck to it,' said the cook. "'It was meself that saw the heavy crack in the plate before you set the cake onto it, Mum. "'I took cookies and boiled eggs to the picnic.' The wreck had hardly been cleared away before my son and heir appeared in the doorway with a hole of unimagined dimensions in his third worst trousers. His second worst were already in the mending basket, so nothing remained for me but to clothe him in his best suit and wonder all day in which part of him I should find the largest hole when I came home. Lastly, I had just put on my hat and was preparing to set forth, warm, tired, and demoralized, when my youngest, in her anxiety to bid me a sufficiently affectionate farewell, lost her small balance and came rolling downstairs after me. No serious harm was done, but it took nearly an hour before I succeeded in soothing and comforting her sufficiently to be able to leave her, with two brown paper patches on her head and elbow in the care of the nurse. When I arrived late, discouraged and with a headache at the picnic grounds, I found the assembled company sitting vapidly about amongst mosquitoes and beetles, already looking bored to death, and I soon perceived that it was expected of me to provide amusement and entertainment for the crowd. I tried to rally, therefore, and proposed a few games, which went off in a spiritless manner enough, and apparently in consequence I began to be assailed with questions and remarks of a reproachful character. "'Don't you feel well today?' Has anything happened? You don't seem as lively as usual. No one took the slightest notice of my explanations until at last, goaded into desperation by one evil-minded old woman, who asked me if it were true that my husband was involved in the failure of Smith, Jones, and Company, I launched out and became wildly and disgracefully silly. Nothing seemed too foolish, too senseless to say, if it only answered the great purpose of keeping off the attack of personal questions. Thus the wretched day wore on, until at last it was time to go home, and the first feeling approaching content was stealing into my weary bosom as I gathered up my basket and shawls, when it was rudely dashed by the following conversation, conducted by two ladies to whom I had been introduced that day. They were standing at a little distance from the rest of the company and from me, and evidently thought themselves far enough away to talk quite loudly, so that these words were plainly borne to my ears." "'I hate to see people try to make themselves so conspicuous, don't you?' "'Yes, indeed, and try to be funny when they haven't any fun in them. "'I can't imagine what Maria was thinking about to call her witty.' "'I know it. I should think such people had better keep quiet when they haven't anything to say. "'I'm glad it's time to go home. Picnics are such stupid things.' What more was said I do not know, for I left the spot as quickly as possible, making an inward resolution to avoid all picnics in the future, till I should arrive at my second childhood. I cannot refrain from giving one other little instance of my sufferings from this cause. I was again invited out, this time to a lunch party, specifically to meet the friend of a friend of mine. The very morning of the day it was to take place I received a telegram stating that my great-aunt had died suddenly in California. Now people don't usually care much about their great-aunts. They can bear to be chastened in this direction very comfortably, but I did care about mine. She had been very kind to me, 
and though the width of the continent had separated us for the last ten years, her memory was still dear to me. I sat down immediately to write a note excusing myself from my friend's lunch party, when just as I took the paper it occurred to me that it was rather a selfish thing to do. My friend's guests were invited, and her arrangements all made, and as the visit of her friend was to be very short, the opportunity of our meeting would probably be lost. So I wrote instead a note to the daughter of my great-aunt, and when the time came I went to the lunch party with a heavy heart. I had no opportunity of telling my friend of the sad news I had received that morning, and I suppose I may have been quiet. Perhaps I even seemed indifferent, though I tried not to be. I could not have been very successful, however, for I was just going upstairs to put my things to go home, when I heard this little conversation in the dressing-room. "'It's too bad she wasn't more interesting today, but you never can tell how it will be. She will do as she likes, and that's the end of it.' "'Yes,' said another voice. "'I think she is rather a moody person anyway. She won't say a word if she doesn't feel like it.' "'Shh, shh, here she comes,' said the other, with a tone and look that told me it was I of whom they were talking. "'And so I adjure all youthful and hopeful persons, who have a tendency to be funny, to keep it a profound secret from the world.' Indulge in your propensities to any extent in your family circle. Keep your immediate relatives, if you like, in convulsions of inextinguishable laughter all the time. But when you mingle in society, guard your secret with your life. Never make a joke, and if necessary, never take one. And by doing so you shall peradventure escape that wrath to come, to which I have fallen an innocent victim, and which I doubt not will bring me to an untimely end. The Independent End of section 7